When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red, Nottingham Forest podcast from Nottinghamshire Live. My name is Matt Davis and I'm joined today by Red's legend, uh, Frank Clark. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Yeah, morning, Matt. I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. You're good. Do you think yourself of a, as a legend or not? No. Uh, you've won the European Cup, so you were manager not, and you were no. chairman. Like that Monty Python film, he's not a legend, he's just a naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, we do appreciate it. Um, where should we start? Uh, well, you've probably been asked this a million times, but you, you signed for Forest in 1975. After you, You've been a big deal at Newcastle, you played 400 games, you, you were captain there. So how on earth did you end up at Forest under Brian Clough? Well, I got a free transfer from Newcastle at the end of the 74-5 season, uh, which is a, a euphemism for the sack, obviously. <laughs> and um, I was, what, 31 then, and I wanted to keep playing, stay in the game. And um, to be fair, Forrest came up with the best offer. I wasn't like, exactly swamped with offers. Uh, but, so it was a bit of a relief when uh, when Brian Clough rang me and said he would like to talk to me about uh, coming to Nottingham Forest. Uh, and it just went from there, really. Uh, we're streaming on Facebook as normal, so if anyone wants to drop comments or questions in, we'll put a couple to to Frank as we as we go along. Did you know Brian Clough through the game well at that point, Frank, or not? Well, I did, obviously, from both being in the northeast. Um, I actually played in his testimonial game at Sunderland when he had to when he had to finish the game early as a player. Sunderland gave him a, <clears throat> gave him a testimonial at Roker Park. And uh, I played uh, in an all-star 11 uh, against Sunderland in, in Brian's testimonial. But I didn't know him very well, but obviously I, I knew of him and, and knew his record. What was that conversation like then when you uh, when he rang up and said he wanted to sign you? Did you think, oh, I'm quids in here or not? I did at first. <laughs> then, we, uh, then when I met him, we arranged to meet at uh, Scotch Corner Hotel. And... Uh, when I walked in, he said straight away, he said, by the way, he said, there's something I've got to tell you. I'm only really selling you because you're cheap. <laughs> so that, was, that was my idea, idea of a massive contract straight out of the window. So the, the discussions didn't take very long. Um, what was the club like when you first signed? So obviously you went on to do great things, but you weren't a, a massive club. Or you were a massive club, but you weren't successful at that point. What was it like when you first walked through the door? Well, the club was all right, um, but we had a, a fairly average team. Um, I think the first season we finished uh, mid-table in the old second division, which is now the championship, of course. And um, thoughts of, uh, of the European Cup were a million miles away. Um, then in the, at the end of the first year, Peter Taylor uh, came back and joined Brian. And things kind of took off from there. They brought in some better players. Um they discovered that they had inherited uh, two or three players who were better than they were performing before they got there. Um, 
uh, and we just carried on from there, really. I guess you're talking about players like Robertson and O'Neill there. Did you see greatness in them or not? Uh, Martin, I thought was always. I always thought Martin was a very good player. Um, John, when I first arrived, I didn't rate John at all. I thought he was a bit of a uh, waste of space, really. His attitude to training wasn't very good. He was. He would. His dress sense was terrible. <laughs> and, uh, no, I wasn't too impressed with him. Um, but for the next uh, three and a half years, he was fantastic, and I was very impressed with him. <laughs> Um, tell us about Brian Clough then. I mean, I speak to you know uh, the legends of your your era. What were you, what was your um, impressions of Clough, and how would you sum him up? Oh, well, d- difficult to sum up really. But as a football manager, he was uh, he was uh, up there with the very best. He had a great uh, a great uh, sense of man management, which was natural to him. Um, although I think he learned a lot from. Uh, managers that he'd played for in the past, uh, Alan Brown at Sunderland would be one. Um, and he was just a, a great manager, and he had a, good, a great sense about football of what was what was right and what was what worked. Um, he was never complicated. Never complicated things. He picked players in positions who and never asked him to do what they couldn't do. Uh, as long as you were trying to, to do what he asked you to do, then you're okay. But he never asked you to do what you couldn't do, which is a is a, is a really a very important part of being a football manager. What was your relationship like with him? Because obviously he must have handled different players differently. You, like you said, you were 31. You'd been round the horn a bit uh, a few times. Well, how did you um, get on with him to start with? Well, he treated me like that. I mean, I, listen, I never I was never close to him. Obviously, he was the manager. But he, he knew uh, uh, my background, knew what I'd done, had obviously done a bit of digging to find out what sort of block I was, and he, he kind of left me alone, really. Um, told me that he didn't want me to be the captain. I think Sammy Chapman was the captain when I came, and obviously John McGovern was, uh, uh, was, was captain, and Brian knew John very well. I didn't want me to be the captain. He thought I could have an influence in the dressing room without necessarily being a captain. And he just wanted me to leave me free to to concentrate on, on you know, as long as I possibly could, uh, str- str- stringing out my career. Were you happy not to be captain because you've been captain at Newcastle? Was that a bit of a, did you feel like that was a slight or was it a relief? No, it was a bit of a relief, really, because I'd, uh, I'd had a difficult 12 months at uh, Newcastle uh, being club captain. I'd... Uh, I'd got into fighting one or two battles with the um, with the management and the directors on behalf of the people that I shouldn't have been fighting, you know. So it was quite a relief, really. When you got in the, you went up um, in seventy seven. Yeah. Could you could you have foreseen that you'd ever win the league? Do you think that season? No, no, I don't think anybody did really. Um, but as I say, we, we started off, uh, the first game was Everton away. And um, we were all over the place, uh, you know, with Everton, really. We uh, changed its angle. Um, we uh, we went there to Goodison Park and for 20 minutes, we couldn't get a breath, really. And then we settled down a little bit and, and, and started to play and actually beat uh, Everton that day. And I think we all thought, well, this is not uh, this is not quite as difficult as we thought. 
Um, and we just went went on from there, and we carried on, and we kept winning games. Um, people, Bob Wilson especially, kept saying the bubble's going to burst. Um, we tried to tend to ignore that and just carried on and, and kept winning games. And they brought in some one or two uh, even better players. They signed Shilton, who at, at that time I think was the best goalkeeper in the world, I thought. Um, and we just carried on. Question from Chris Cooper. Um, who was the best player you played with or against during your time in the game? All my time in the game. Well, the, the best I played with, John Robertson would have to be near the very top of that. Because uh, John was fantastic for, for me, for me to play behind John. John, one of John's strengths, apart from being absolutely two-footed and, you know, well, he never, ever hit even when things weren't going very well. And he always wanted the ball, uh, and that suited me down the ground. If I, the, the earlier I could give him the ball, the better I liked it. And uh, so he was very good for me. He was a, he was a top, top player. But I played with lots of uh, very good players. They say Shilton, I thought, at that time was probably uh, the best goalkeeper in the world. Uh, Malcolm McDonald was a terrific, uh, terrific player at, at Newcastle. Tony Green, I would put right up there in the top four or five. And Tony only played for a season at Newcastle and before he was tragically injured. But um, fantastic player. But John Robertson was, uh, was probably number one, I think. Uh, as, as regards playing against the two, really, uh, the one obvious one would be George Best. I had lots of, uh, lots of battles against George, and I always felt that I came out okay there. And the other one was Pelé. Uh, I actually played against Pele in an in a end-of-season friendly in Hong Kong for Newcastle back in 72, I think, 71, 72. And it, Pele was out there with Santos and we played them in a, in a friendly in Hong Kong and the beat us 4-2. Uh, he was magnificent. Scored a hat-trick and then went off after about an hour. He'd done enough. <laughs> <laughs> um Thanks to people who put questions in. I'll come to those later on about today's team. Um, what about John Robertson and tracking back then? If you're the fullback and you're relying on your winger to get back, was there any of that or not? Well, no, we. I was. I didn't expect John Robertson to keep chasing and tracking back, um, but he always. I, I helped him. He, he always used to fill in and, and fill a, a little hole once the player was on the other side. He would. He would just drop back in. Um, Maybe he's 20, 25 yards in front of me and, and, and stop their winger uh, getting the ball too early. Um, but listen, he, he was so good when he got the ball that right fullbacks in those days against us didn't do a lot of overlapping. They had everything on the plate trying to deal with him. Um, so, no, I didn't expect him to chase back. I just expected, I used to pull him back into that little hole when the player was on the other side and he was he was okay with that. Um this is a Forest podcast, but I'll ask you about George Best anyway. How do you stop George Best without fouling him? Well, uh, George uh, George did say to somebody in, a, in, a, in one of my old teammates, Tommy Cassidy, who played with him uh, with Northern Ireland, that I was one of the fullbacks that he least liked playing against because I would never. Uh, I, would ne- I was quite quick, believe it or not. A lot of people, not many people, know that, but I was actually very quick and. Uh, I never used to dive in. I used to I used to try and push wingers into areas they didn't want to go, and I used to force them to make the first move. 
Um, so I always did okay against George, apart from perhaps one game at Old Trafford when at Newcastle when they beat us six 0 or something. Uh, I think he came out on top that day, but uh, <laughs> other than that, I was okay. Um, going back to the title-winning season, then, do you remember what the celebrations were like at the end? What the city was like of Nottingham to, to have bought that title oh, to the city? The city went went crazy. They loved it, obviously, but we didn't uh, we didn't celebrate to that to any great extent, you know. Brian and Peter weren't weren't that kind of people, you know. We uh, we won the title, and um, yeah, great uh, away to Coventry, I believe, when we uh, when we drew nil nil, uh, and we came back, and there was nothing arranged, no special celebrations. I think all the lads went out somewhere. Uh, we all went out together, um, and then it was let's get on with it. We've got another game next week, um, you know. So I mean, when we won the League Cup, we came back uh, to Nottingham straight away. There was nothing arranged. Brian took the League Cup home and stuck it in front of his television, and we all went to we, we all went to uh, Alan Hill's pub uh, in Bunny with, with the wives and had a great night. But not nothing particularly organised by the club, so there just wasn't that great celebration thing. Were you annoyed by that, or did that or was that a, a factor in you going on to win more trophies that there wasn't? Oh, it, it, didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I think when I see some of the celebrations today. And I know we're in a different era. Uh, shouldn't sound like a, a bitter old man, but it, it really uh, depresses me when I see them carrying on like that. So I wasn't I wasn't worried about that. I was listen. I was just delighted that that we'd done it, that we'd won something, and then when we won something else, um, let's get on and see if we can win another one. Obviously, the next season you won the European Cup. What are your memories of that season? Because it proved to be your final season in the game. I mean, there were some incredible games like the Liverpool tie and then obviously the final and the semi-final. What, what do you recall about that season? <laughs> well, I wasn't uh, I wasn't the regular first choice by then. Um, I got injured in the, the title-winning season and uh, Colin Barrett came in and, and really made the left-back spot his own. Um, so for the for the Liverpool game, the, the, the European Cup... Uh, the two-legged game against Liverpool, I wasn't even in the squad for the first game at the City Ground. Uh, with, that's probably the only time I've really been upset at, uh, with Brian at Nottingham Forest. Um, and Colin scored that magnificent second goal, of course, which is very important, and then got injured the following Saturday, I believe, which was a tragedy for him, really, because he was, he was never quite the same after that. And I got back on the team and my first game in the first team that season was the second leg at Liverpool away. And they'd obviously, uh, they'd obviously spotted that and uh, made sure that it was plenty of attacks coming down their right-hand side. It was a bit like the Alamo, I think. Uh, <laughs> but we managed to get through. Um, and, and then we went on and then, uh, we, you know, we just kept, we kept going on and winning. That mocking Liverpool out obviously gave the team a um, a massive lift of, uh, in the confidence because Liverpool, by common consent at that time, were the, supposedly the best team in Europe. Um, so where we went, um, I didn't play in all the games, but I managed to sneak in, get enough games. I played away to uh, AK Athens. Um, I came on as a sub in the in the first leg of the semi final against Cologne. 
and I played in the second leg in, in Cologne, which I thought was the probably the most after Liverpool was the most important game of the whole the whole campaign because with Liverpool out, then Cologne were the best team in Europe. Um, so we drew three three at the City Ground, as I'm sure you'll all remember, and everybody was writing us off. Uh, Brian and Peter were absolutely cool about that. And, uh, you know, I remember his, his, his television interview. He said something, if anybody thinks we're out and written off, you're a fool, you know. Uh, we went out to Cologne and, and we, you know, we beat them. And it was fairly comfortable, really. It certainly wasn't, uh, you know, a whole box to the wall. Um, we got a bit of a inspiration when we got there. And there were signs all over Cologne saying, book your trip to Munich for the final. <laughs> uh, which was uh, really did did Brian's job for him. They didn't need to give a team talk after that. Uh, and then there we are in the final against Malmo. Uh, Malmo, the, I would I was injured uh, a couple of weeks before the final, uh, but managed to get fit, or certainly ninety five percent fit. And on the day of the final uh, in Germany, there was myself. Archie Gemmell, who was a Scottish international, Martin O'Neill, who was a, an Irish international, all competing for one place in the team. Because we all knew Trevor Francis would play. It was Trevor's, Trevor's debut, actually, in the, uh, uh, in the European Cup. Uh, so it was just a matter of how the rest of the team would be set up. And um, nobody said anything. Uh, we did a bit of training on the morning of the game. And Brian was kind of walking around and said to me, are you fit? And of course I said, yes, boss. <laughs> I said to Archie Gemmell, are you fit? <laughs> Archie said the same, yes, boss. And asked Martin and Martin said exactly the same. So we're all declaring ourselves fit. And uh, fortunately I got the uh, I got the shout and uh, I felt quite sorry for Martin and, and Archie. It really hurt them badly, but obviously very pleased for myself. Was it... Um... Did that affect your relationship with those players? Like, like you say, they were so so high profile, or is it something players dust off? No, no, they didn't. Listen, they didn't. Uh, they didn't take it out on me. It was, it was Brian. I think it it, it kind of ruined Arch, certainly Archie's uh, relationship with Brian for a long, long time. Um, in fact, Archie never played another game for Nottingham Forest in that close that close season after the after the final he'd gone. Martin always had a bit of a um, steamy, spiky relationship with uh, with Brian, so I didn't think it made a great uh, difference to that. Of course, Martin, fortunately for him, stayed at the club and played uh, in the final the next year, so he did get to play in a, in a European Cup final. What was? Um, do you remember what the manager said before the game as a team talk? And what was? I'm interested to know what kind of a typical Brian Clough team talk was. Was it? Was it off the wall or was it kind of an, a, a, a typical manager's team talk? Well, as far as I remember, he said, there's no way this team can beat you. <laughs> and then walked out. <laughs> I, I always, Listen, I always remember, uh, stop me if I'm boring you, but I had a, a very good right. friend of mine was playing and coaching in Sweden at the time. And obviously he'd seen Malmö play. So he sent me a letter with, uh, with a few... Uh, um, tips and hints of what we might do against them and how they might play. And I got this letter and I thought, oh, shall I show it to Brian and Peter? 
<laughs> and I agonized for days what to do with it, whether to throw it away or whether eventually I plucked up the courage to, to show it to Brian. And he looked at it and he said, forget that. He said, this team cannot beat us in Munich. So don't worry about it. So that was it, really. <laughs> what about a normal Clough team tour before a standard league game? Did, did he give these rousing Chichillian speeches or was it more of, like you say, a one-sentence walkout job? No, he never gave Churchillian speeches. No, he was a socialist. Yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, it was, listen, it, with, with him, and, it, it, with him and Peter, it was all about making sure, really, that we were relaxed before games, rather than jing us up. You know, he was a great believer that you couldn't do yourself justice if you were if you were too tense before a game. So the ins- inspirational. Um, speeches in a dressing room before the game were actually very few and far between. It was the rest of the work that, that went on all the week that kind of kind of built up confidence in the t- in the players in the team that we can go, if we go out and we, we do play our way and do our job we, we can win this game. And that was how it worked. The Malmo game proves to be your last game as a pro. Um I, I know the story, but can you relay to the listeners why you lived after that game, went out on such a high? Uh, well, uh, I, I played the game, as you say, and uh, I still had a year left a year left on a playing contract with Forrest. And I'd had a, I'd had a few uh, uh, injuries that season, a couple of hamstring strains, which is, you know, to sign really if your body's telling you it might be time to uh, to give it a, give it a, a rest here, you know. But I wasn't thinking of packing in. Uh, and then I got a, a phone call from a lad called Ken Knighton that uh, who just got the manager's job at Sunderland. I didn't know Ken that well, really. I'd met him on a, a couple of coaching courses, FA coaching courses, but that was it, really. And he said, "Listen, I'd like you to come to Sunderland and be the assistant manager." And I was looking to get into coaching and management, obviously, when I uh, when I finished playing. And I just thought, hmm, this might just be the right the right time, you know. Obviously, it, um, it was it was great from a family point of view. My wife, uh, one daughter, out at the time, it was great for her to be going back to to Newcastle around her relatives, and we still have a lot of friends up there. Uh, but the the job appealed to me. Uh, so I went, to, I went to see Brian, uh, and Brian said he didn't want me to go. He, he offered, actually offered me a, another year uh, as a player, but he's very honest with me. He said, um, you won't play regularly, you won't be first choice, because obviously they were in the process of signing um, uh, Frankie Gray. Uh, but he said, I'd like you to be around the club, I, I, like you. I think you'd be a great influence on the young players, and you'll help the club, and we'd like you to stay. So it was, a, it was a very, very difficult decision for me to make, actually. But uh, once I'd made it, uh, he was fine about it. Um, we'll talk about your time as Forest Manager in a minute. There's a question here from David Oliver that I was going to ask you um, on playing. Uh, the, what was the best match you played in? Would it be that Malmo game or was it? would there be another one further back in your career? Oh, that's, David, that's, a, that's a tricky one, that one. Um, I, the best match I ever played in. In terms of, I mean, I didn't enjoy the Marmore game very much, really. I 
I didn't think we played very well that particular day. You know, there aren't many um, classic European Cup finals because they're right at the end of a long, hard season. You know, John Robertson had played 70 games that season, never missed a game, 70 games. Um, and we were a little bit a little bit off our pick as a team. Malmo, Malmo weren't a great side by any means, but they were very well organised, very defensive, and made it very, very difficult for us. So it was quite a frustrating a frustrating game uh, to play in, really. Um, probably the, oh, I don't know, the, the most enjoyable game, I thought, was Cologne away. You know, I just felt from the first whistle that we would, that we would win this game. We were really comfortable most of the game and was, nobody was panicking that we hadn't got, a, we knew we had to score. Nobody was panicking that we hadn't, uh, that we hadn't got a goal in the first half. And after, after Ian got the goal, it, it was very relaxed, really. Because I never really enjoyed uh, the actual 90 minutes of a game. People quite get surprised about this. But for me, it was all about winning. Uh, it wasn't about artistic beauty or looking great or all that kind of thing. That might have been a commentary on me as a player. Uh, but um, it was always about winning. And... When you're a professional athlete, I think that's what it's got to be about. You know, you, you're there to win. Um, so the actual 90 minutes, I was always concentrating too hard to to be able to say I really enjoyed it. Uh, the enjoyment came afterwards with the with the winning of the game. And don't get me wrong, I love the lifestyle. I love being a professional footballer. I love the training and the banter and uh, you know all of the dressing room atmosphere and that. Um, but the actual 90 minutes, I always found uh, quite stressful. You um, you came back in 1993 as obviously the next manager after Brian Clough. I suppose in my head at the time, I, w- I would have thought, oh, he's been handpicked by Brian to be the next man. Um, but that wasn't the case, was it? No, it wasn't. No, in fact, when, when Alan Hill told Brian uh, who'd got his job, he was, he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. Um I mean, I'll tell you the story, uh, how it did come about. Um, I was managing director at Lane Orient by this time, and I was running the whole club. Um, I had a, a team manager, Peter Eustace, who ran the team, and I was really enjoying it. And I thought I'd kind of resign myself to the fact that the big jobs would never come along. Uh, and right out of the blue, I got a call from, from Fred, Fred Reacher. I knew Brian had, had, had gone. And Fred said, no, then, Frank, uh, you know, Brian's gone. I said, yeah, I know that, Fred. He said, you couldn't do me a favour. He said, we've been turned down by five people and we're desperate. <laughs> you want the job? <laughs> which, which wasn't exactly a, a vote of confidence. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was – there weren't probably <laughs> um, – coming to Forest or Newcastle were probably the only two jobs I would have left late Norian for. And uh, it was just too good an opportunity to come, even with that vote of confidence. Did you have any second thoughts, though, in the sense that you were succeeding? You know, you were the, the man after the man. You've been forced to be relegated. I guess there was players who wanted out. It wasn't exactly an easy first season. Obviously, you didn't start that season very well before it all picked up from there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know a second thought about it. Um, I, just, I just looked upon it as a as a wonderful opportunity for me. Um, it was, you're right, it was very difficult. Um, 
August, September, October. Um, but, I, you know, I, I inherited a lot of problems when I came. Um, another vote of confidence from the board was, well, we don't expect you to talk about consolidation. We expect you to get it straight back up. <laughs> and by the way, there's no money to spend. But, there was a but, uh, whoever, if you bring any money in, trans, you know, by transfer that, you'd be able to spend that. And to be fair to them, they were as, as good as they were. But I had lots of problems, you know. Um, the club was in, in, in disarray because Brian had left. There was a, there was a terrible kind of um, hang, a cloud hanging over the over the, the club and the city of, of depression and not fear, would perhaps too strong a word, but like the Messiah's gone, what's going to, and we've, we've been relegated, what's going to happen? Roy Keane was obviously going to go. He had this clause in his contract, which said if anybody, if anybody agreed to pay three and a half million, he could go and he would get 10% of that, which the club had given him, you know, that was fine. <laughs> as soon as I saw that uh, clause, I knew that I had no chance of keeping Roy. Nigel wanted to leave for obvious reasons. You know, there'd been problems with his father and some of the board. And and Gary Charles had problems as well, so he wanted to leave. And Pacey was uh, struggling with the, with the idea of playing in the in the championship. He thought it might harm his uh, harm his England career. So I had to deal with all that. Plus, if you remember, at the time we had a don't know. They remember a, a TV program called World in Action, which was kind of a, for, a forerunner of Panorama, and they had a team permanently uh, stationed in Nottingham, doorstepping uh, staff from the club, trying to dig the dirt on the club and on Brian and, and Fred in particular, and, and and any of the staff. So that was all difficult to deal with. Um, but you know, you could just get on and you deal with it, and. Um, as good as a word, I was uh, I was allowed to spend that money that we got for Roy, um, Nigel, and and Gary Charles, and most importantly, I was able to persuade Stuart to stay. I rang uh, Graham Taylor, who I believe was the England manager at that time. Uh, it might have been Terry Venables. I, I can't remember now. My memory's gone a bit. <laughs> um, and they said, "Look, you, you know, if he's playing well." He'll be in the squad, in the team. You need to worry about that. So I was able to persuade him to stay, which was a massive, a massive uh, bonus for me. You know, for me personally, but also because uh, the supporters and the club and the players. Stuart was a Stuart was a tremendous captain for me. He, he was great. Really did a real good job for me. And then the the big name. I mean, I'm sure you signed a few players. The one that obviously springs to mind is Collie Moore. Um, can you tell people what he was like to to manage? Was he as difficult as I imagine he is or not? He was difficult, no doubt about that, Stan. Incredibly talented. Probably, arguably, the most talented player I've ever really um, worked with. He could do everything, um, but he was a problem. A, he, he didn't like training. And he was a, a fantastic athlete, but he didn't like training. He was very, very suspicious of people. Um, and he, 
I don't know whether he had uh, a few mental problems then, you know, I think problems that surfaced later on for him. But certainly we never saw any, any evidence of that whilst he was with us. But he was difficult to handle. But he was worth all the aggravation. How did you handle him? Well, with uh, um, a bit of a bit of both, really, a bit of carrot and stick, you know. Not much stick because the players, <laughs> the players, we, we had a, a bit of a players' committee in those days. Stewart, senior player, Stewart, Colin Cooper, Steve Chettle, and I used to, you know, I used to keep them involved with a lot of things that were going on. And there were times when I was I should have fined Stan, and they would come in and say, no, "Don't fine him, boss." The players are okay, obviously, because you've got to be concerned if you if you if you're letting a player off something. The other players might look at that and think, "Well, that's not right." Um, would come in and say that was okay, and Liam O'Kane would come and see me, the coach, and say, uh, "Put the envelope in your desk. Don't give it to him." And he'd win us the game on the Saturday. So it was a bit of a bit of carrot and stick, uh, but for two years he was magnificent for us as a player, worth all the aggravation. <laughs> Uh, do you think, with hindsight, obviously you're not going to turn Liverpool down, but do you think he would have been better for his career if he stayed at Forest and been the big fish in the slightly smaller pond and he might have won more England caps where, at a club where you might have accommodated him more than a, you know, um, a, a giant behemoth like Liverpool? Well, I think that's a possibility, Matt. I, I, I tried to persuade, I tried to, to use that argument with him to, to persuade him to stay. Um, you know, I said, look, you know, we've got the team set up here to get the best out of you. We indulge you a little bit. Um, that won't happen at Liverpool. Uh, but he, he was he was adamant that he was that he was going to leave. Um, but yeah, he, he might he might have. You, you, you can't really tell. You know, he got in the England team, uh, as you know, at the end of the of the second season and played. Was in the squad for. They had a they had a, a end of season tournament at Wembley, if you remember the rehearsal for the for Euro '96, and Stewart obviously was in the squad, and Stan, Steve Stone, and Colin Cooper got in the squad as well. So the four of them were there. Yeah. And Terry Venables was the manager by then, um, and uh, shortly after they they squad had gathered together, I got a phone call from Terry. And I thought, oh, what's Stan being up to now? And he said, uh, he said, tell me about Stan. I said, what, why, what do you mean, Terry? He says, well, he, he, he's around the place and he looks as though he doesn't, he doesn't want to be here. He's giving off that vibe that he doesn't really want to be here. And I thought, oh, no. Um, and that he, he probably wasn't that bothered about it, you know. I mean, most people who'd, who'd come from Stafford Rangers in the space of maybe two, three years, to, to be in the England squad would be absolutely over the moon about it, you know, and thrilled and wanting to show their enthusiasm for it. But Stan was giving off that he didn't really want to be there. And he, I think he played, I think he started one of the games. And I saw one of the games, the game against Brazil, and I thought he did okay. But he never got picked again. Mm. He went to Liverpool. It wasn't all bad at Liverpool, to be fair. I know, listen, when he first went there, him and Fowler were a right. A handful, a real partnership, uh, but it didn't last very long. Um, when you went up, then um, 
Actually, I mean, did you, we, we, was it a big relief to go up that season then? Because we, as we said, it didn't start well and in the end you did go up. But do you, actually, do you think you would have got sacked if you hadn't taken them up that first season? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure whether I got sacked, but that's what they, you know, that's more or less what they said. Um, but I never, you know, I never let that uh, sort of hang over me. Um, but I thought we, you know, we, we ended up with a, with a really good team. Um, and the important thing really for me, or one of the important things for me is, although, it was a, although I'd, rather, I'd rather have kept Roy Keane and Nigel Clough, obviously, because it you know, like two top players. The money that I got enabled me really to bring in players to put my own stamp on the team. So after sort of October, when we signed Lars Bohinen, it was my team. You know, there were five or six players in that team that I brought to the club. And um, I thought that season we, we, we were a really good team. There's a comment here that I'll flash up on Bahinen from Owen Bailey. It says, um, the unsung signing that era was Lars Bahinen. He made the team tick. Is that? Do you agree with that? Um, well, I, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but he was the final piece in the jigsaw, if you like. If you remember, as you said, we started off um, struggling and got to kind of early October, I think we were bottom six, seven, something like that. And Lars was was my last signing, I think, that season. And bringing him, bringing him in enabled me uh, to do a couple of things that I wanted to do. Was almost to move Steve Stone out wide on the right because I think that was where he was going to be best at. And the other one was to drop David Phillips back into the central midfield anchor anchor man. Um, and there were the, you know, there were the three key things that happened. We went to Birmingham, I think, and beat Birmingham. 3-1, three, 3-0, three, and we just took off from there. And Lars, Lars was a, one of a, one of a, some very, very good players, a very skillful player, exactly what I wanted in, in, a, in a midfield player to play in that particular team. Um, yeah, so there's no question that he was a, was a very important part of the team. What was your approach to that team as a manager? Did you give them... Um, I mean, like you said, winning was the only thing that mattered. But did you give them quite a lot of freedom? Because Bahina was a bit of a free spirit. Obviously, you had Roy later and Collymore. Was the leash quite loose on them? Well, up to a point, uh, there, were, there, were, there was a freedom. We nominally lined up, you could call it 4-4-2 or sometimes 4-5-1. But people like um, Bohina, Stone, Collymore and Roy, certainly when he came, when we had the ball really had the freedom to just get forward and, and go and play and play the game as they saw it and, 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 and you know, do what they could do. Um, when we lost it, we, we always try to get back very, very quickly into two banks of four, like a back four and a midfield four, uh, to make it difficult for teams to get through it. And that worked very well. But once we had the ball, they all had a, had a freedom to, to go and play, really. Stuart that freedom to get forward, Des Little, the two centre backs, and, and and David Phillips really were the with the pivot at the back that kind of you know kept us kept us secure when we lost the ball. I am um, on Brian Roy. I watched a uh, a video of him on a YouTube show recently, buying into some very odd conspiracy theories around all sorts of mad stuff. What was he like as a player at the time? Was he a bit of a 
a maverick and was he a bit of a challenge to manage like Collie Moore? Conspiracy theories around Brian Roy. Yeah. What sort of conspiracy theories? Oh my gosh. Uh, what did he believe? That um, Democrats in America are child abusers, um, that the Queen's been replaced by a clone, that oh, Hillary body oh, panel. That kind I of thing. I Brian Roy. Now, Brian Roy was, uh, it was interesting. I brought, when we got promoted, when we got promoted, I went to the board and I said, have we got any money to bring any players in? Uh, and the board said, oh, no, 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 we haven't got any money. No, 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 sorry. So I thought, oh, great. Because I felt that we, we needed a bit of quality uh, to bring to the team. Um, I always felt that any team that got promoted to the premiership, it was a question of bringing in quality rather than quantity. Um, anyway, so... I was sitting in my office in the, in the summer, trying to f- figure out who I could who I could bring in as a bit of quality for nothing. And I got a phone call from an agent saying, asking me what I was looking for. And I said, really, I was looking for a left-sided attacking player, without being too specific. And he said, oh, you mean somebody like Brian Roy? And I said, don't take the proverbial. So he's out of our, our range. We weren't going to get him. He said, well, he said he's available. He, he was playing for a team in, in Italy called Foggia and they'd just been relegated. So they had to sell and Brian was their only uh, asset, really. So he said, you'll get him for, for two million. So I'm sat there thinking, oh, right. So I went to see Fred and told him and Fred said, well, he said, just r- run with it and see where it takes you. Uh, don't tell anybody. Let's try and keep it quiet. Uh, and run with it, uh, which is what I did. And uh, without going into too much detail, uh, I got it all set up. Uh, flew out to America. Brian was playing in the World Cup for Holland mm. uh, in, in America, 94, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, went out there to meet him. Got off the plane and the agent said, I'm sorry, you can't meet him. The manager won't let him out of the camp. So I thought, oh, that's great. All the way to Miami. And I'm not going to see him. He says, but the good news is you can go and watch him play. And you can travel on the on the coach with all the Dutch FA officials because his agent's father is chairman of the Dutch FA. So I get on this coach and he said, get up the back and sit among the wives, the players' wives. So I go up the back and uh, I end up sitting next to Brian's wife, which is very, you know, that's handy. That. So I'm talking to her and she was a bit of a budding actress. And she asked me how far Nottingham was from London. So I thought, hmm, this could be a key question here. So I said, no, not that far, really. (laughs) 40 minutes in the train. (laughs) Or 30 minutes in an aeroplane. Anyway, she must have been impressed. Anyway, to cut the story short, Brian was hopeless on the night. And I'm thinking, I'm not too sure about this now. But we managed to get, we managed to, we went through with the deal. Um, Brian came over to sign on the day we had a, uh, a board meeting and the agent leaked the story to the paper. I don't know whether I remember that. Um, so when I went in the board meeting, the, the, the rest of the board still didn't know. They were absolutely furious and they just were going to not let me do it. Anyway, Fred and I managed to persuade them 
And uh, so we, we did. And he came as a left-sided uh, attacking player. Uh, initially, I thought I might play him out on the left wing. He stand up the middle on his own. Um, but Ian Warren, in the way that he approached training and pre-season games, was saying to me, well, you ain't going to get my place. You're not going to leave me out the team. And Brian kind of showed me that he didn't really want to play wide on the left because he'd been a, a left winger, really, for, for Holland. He didn't want to play out on the left, so I looked at it and thought about it and thought, well, I think Brian and Stan up front could be, uh, could be pretty formidable. And, and that's how we went. And the two of them were, well, you know, we didn't spend hours on the training field working out moves, how they could play together. They just went up there and, and played and, and really knitted in together. That turned into a, obviously a great side. I mean, obviously the Sheffield Wednesday, is it 7-2 or whatever it was away? 7-1. 7-1, sorry. <laughs> and you went on to finish third that season after getting promoted. Do you think that team gets the credit it deserves now or not? Because that was a great achievement. No, I don't think it does. I don't think it did at the time. Just from uh, just from Forest supporters mm. in the main, um, you know, lots of people have come up to me and said, "What a fantastic season that was!" And, and how much they enjoyed it. But certainly from the the uh, the, the press at large, and, and yeah. Uh, I don't think it did, no. Um, to finish, to come up and finish third in the Premier League was a was a fantastic achievement, really. Something that I would never have, uh, have dreamed of at the start of the season, I have to say. You, you backed it up the next season by getting to the um, UEFA Cup. Was it the quarterfinals? Obviously, you played Bayern Munich. And then that was a, a good season to follow it up, wasn't it, as well? Well, I thought it was, but... Uh, a lot of people thought I wasn't. Uh, what I should have done, I should have. <laughs> you don't have a choice in these things. I should have done it the other way around. <laughs> if we would finished, finished ninth and got to the quarterfinals of the of the FA Cup in my our first season in the Premier League, everybody would have said, "Well, that's not bad. That's pretty good." And then the following season, taking us on to third, people would have said, "Well, that's great, that." But in fact, because it was the other way around. A lot of people were disappointed with that. Mm. You, you might not believe this, but season ticket sales were really down in the close season after we finished ninth. Um, uh, you know, and that was a, that was another problem that we had to live with. Um, so finishing third in in the first season back became a bit of a became a bit of a rod for my own back. Mm. Are you disappointed at how it ended as as manager? I think. A few signings didn't come off. From what I read, there was tough, you know, boardroom difficulties that you had to contend with. Was it a, a kind of a sour way that you left the club at that point? Oh, massive, massive, massive disappointment. I never ever thought I'd, I would resign a job. I always remember Brian talking me one day um, and saying, whatever you do, never resign. If you think about resigning, go to bed and sleep on it. If you get up, or you wake up and you're still thinking about it, stay in bed. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I, I made one or two, obviously, poor signings. Um, but it was, it, was made, it was difficult because, as I say, the, when, the, when that season ended, when we finished third, again, it was, there's no money to spend. Mm. 
And so I wasn't really, I thought we were okay. I wasn't really looking at, uh, uh, at bringing anybody in. And then when the, the season ticket sales were down, the board panicked. Plus, um, something else happened that, that, that was very important, very important for the whole game, not just for Nottingham Forest. The Bosman ruling came in. Yeah. Now, I'm sure you remember that, and most of the, your viewers will remember that because you're all football fans. And at a stroke, that put Nottingham Forest as a football club under massive financial pressure. Because the way the club was run at that time, nobody put money into the football club. You know, they were, they were, they were, it was 210 committees, all had one share each. The board had to come out of that group and they could be voted out on a whim. So nobody was going to put money in on, on that basis. And the only, the only revenue they had, they had a, a, an agreed overdraft with a bank. I think it was Barclays, but I'm not sure. Overdraft, I think it was about £6 million. But that overdraft was, was, um, was guaranteed on the value of the players. You know, they, they did, as you know, they didn't own the ground, so they had no, no other security. And the security for the bank was the value of the players. Well, Bosman, overnight, knocked that one out of the window because... Mm-hmm. As you know, player get a 24 out of contract and he walks for nothing. So straight away from then on, I was under pressure uh, from the board uh, about money. And as I say, the, the season ticket sales were down. Then they decided, well, we'll find you a bit of money and you can go and buy players. Well, that's not the best way to do it, like you know. And um, we, so we started off the season. Um, I think Pacey got injured. But the, the biggest blow, Steve Stone uh, fractured his kneecap very early, very early on, and um, and never played again that season. Campbell got injured. I'd I'd made a mistake with Campbell. I bought him a year too early. Really, he became a very, very good player for Forest uh, eventually. Um, but I signed him a year too early. Um, I got carried away with myself. You know, they called it hubris, I believe. <laughs> After we finished third in the in the Premier League, I thought I could walk on water, and uh, I found I couldn't. I couldn't even swim. <laughs> um, and I signed Campbell against the against the opinion of the club doctor, Lynn Jarrett. Lynn Jarrett was a fantastic guy, lovely guy, club doctor, top man. And when I was going to, I knew I knew Kevin. I had him on loan at Orient, and I knew him from. Uh, Arsenal. I knew he'd had a back operation. I was convinced he was over it. And Lynn said, I'm not sure about this one. I think he might need a, a, a little bit longer. Like, and, I, and Clever Dick said, no, no, he'll be okay. Uh, and in those days, you know, you could overrule the club doctor. And anyway, Lynn was such a lovely blow. Um, so I signed him and, and, he, and Lynn was right. He had a lot of injury problems that first season and never really did himself justice. Never really did himself justice until I had left. Um, I signed Andres Salenzi, which was obviously a big mistake on my part. I have to hold my hands up to that one. And, um, and we got a few injuries, couldn't score a goal, and then the takeover talk started swirling around. Rightly so, the board were looking at... Um, at uh, the different ways of funding the club. They realised that once Bosman had come in, they couldn't really 
carry on uh, in the same way. So there's a lot of uh, rumours swirling around the club. Um, and then uh, it came out, somebody made an offer. And then the chairmanship changed. The, cha- the chairman of Nottingham Forest, it, it was it was Buggins' turn, you know. If, if Once you've had the job three years, mm. you had to move on and somebody else got the job. And I had a great relationship with uh, with Fred, Fred Richard. He was a great chairman for me, really. But then Irving Scholar took over. And I never really had the same relationship with Irving. He used to come in and and, and, and worry away at me. He said, we've had the bank on again. We've got to get the overdraft down. What can you do? And I'm saying to him, well, who do you want me to sell? Like I said, I'll sell Pierce or, um, you know, uh, Wone or Cooper or... And Urban would say, "No, no, you can't sign any of those. You can't sell any of those." The crowd would go berserk. And I said, "Well, who do you want me to sell? You know, I'm not, I can't get any money for our reserve team players." And I just felt that the uh, we couldn't we couldn't get a result to save our lives. Really, um, the first game we, we beat Compy away three 0 and we all thought we were flying. And, and then for after that, we couldn't win a game. And I just sensed that the board had, uh, had lost confidence in me. And stopped me managing the club. Really, one or two little things that they said we're going to they were going to do that I wanted them to do, they didn't do. Um, and it got to a point where I said to Irwin, I said, "Look, either sack me or back me, you know, one way or the other." And I wouldn't do that either. Made the excuse of the, of the uh, takeover, which was, was swirling around. Uh, so I did. I did resign. And that might have been a mistake. I'm, I'm, I mean, you never know, do you? You make a, you do, you make a decision at the time because you, you think it's the right decision. Um, uh, and that's what I did. You've been so generous with your time. I don't want to harp on about a negative, but Salenzi's widely rated as the worst signing, you know, of the, of the club, of the club by a lot of people. I mean, is there a case for the defence there for you in that, you know, he was an Italian international and he'd actually done. He came into the club with a good reputation. Do you feel you just landed on some bad luck with him there? No, I can't claim bad luck. I could claim mitigating circumstances. Um, mm. We, I'm just trying to get the, the things in order. We sold Colin Moore, as you know, mm. and uh, I bought Kevin Campbell and Bart Williams to the club and kept the rest of the money for a rainy day. And... Uh, we were going for a, a pre-season tour and the strikers at the club were Kevin Campbell, Jason Lee and Brian Roy. Uh, and just before we went on the pre-season tour, Kevin Campbell got injured, Brian Roy got injured and Jason Lee came to see me and said he, he couldn't go on this tour. His wife had was either having a baby or just having a baby and was having a very difficult time and he was afraid to leave her and there was nobody else um, available to help him. So I panicked, I have to say. And Salenzi is the only player I signed without seeing him. Mm. I saw a couple of videos, rang a couple of people, uh, spoke to Don Howe, uh, who gave him a a very good uh, opinion. And uh, looked at his uh, CV. He was at that time. He was in the uh, Italian uh, national squad. He was a regular playing in, in Serie A in uh, in Italy. 
Uh, so I weighed everything up and, uh, and took a chance on it. And uh, it didn't work out. Didn't work out. It wasn't his fault. Um, so it has to be my fault, really. He couldn't. Uh, he was the first uh, Italian to come from Serie A, I believe. He found it very, very difficult to, to, to cope with England, with the training. Not so much the weather, because he, he came from Turin. I think it gets pretty cold in Turin in the winter. Yeah. Um, but he just, uh, it, it, it just didn't go for him. He was a lovely lad, smashing lad. And, uh, and, uh, but it, it didn't work out. But I, I don't blame anybody else but myself for that. Um, but hey, like hey, Brian made one or two bad decisions on strikers, you know? Every manager does. No, you weren't the only one. You weren't the only one. No, that doesn't make it right. That, that was a... I have to accept full responsibility for that. Um, I was going to say, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of your career, but I wanted to ask about you coming back to the club as chairman uh, after Nigel Doughty. How did how did that come about? Because that was another tough time for the club. You, you don't seem to come back to the club in good times, to be fair. <laughs> no, and I don't come back with votes of confidence either. Um, <laughs> if you remember at the time, uh, Nigel had brought Steve McLaren in as manager. And... Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought this is a this is a dream appointment, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out for Steve. In fact, they were hopeless. And uh, if you remember, the last game in Steve's reign was Birmingham at home. Yes, I do. By this time, Nigel was uh, was getting an awful lot of stick on on Twitter mm. from supporters, which was a bit hard considering he put eighty million pounds of his own money in the club. You know. Um, and anyway, they lost at home to Birmingham, 4-0, I think, something like that, and they were awful. And the crowd started chanting, Doughty out, McLaren out, and McLaren resigned and walked away. Uh, to be fair to him, knew it wasn't working for him, didn't ex- didn't ask or expect any uh, compensation, just walked away. And I got a phone call uh, from Nigel, asking me if I'd go into the club as a football consultant. And I thought, oh, yeah, I like the sound of that. I, I like the, the word consultant. You go in, give your opinion and everything, then you come out and if it goes wrong, you're not there. So I like that idea. And uh, anyway, then about two days later, and I knew that he'd resigned the chair. He, he, he backed off. He wanted to get, try and get out of the, out of the spotlight. And uh, he rang me again and he said, I said, listen, the, 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 the man I've got who is going to take the chair in, in my place feels he's not qualified for it. Um, would you come back as chairman? Oh, that's fantastic. So that's what I did. So I was second choice again. <laughs> so I came back as chairman. Yeah, but he, he was still controlling the, the, the funds. Um, what about under Fawaz then? Because you became ambassador then. What What's your recollection of that time at the club? Because obviously it's, it's not remembered fondly, the Fawaz era. Well, you were around the early days of it. Well, what was it like? Well, listen, when they uh, when they bought the club, it was, I thought, great. Because it, the club was for sale. Now, as you know, Nigel had died tragically in, in the February 
we just managed to scrape and avoid relegation, the finances were dire because there was no more. Nigel, when he died, was financing the, the club to, to the tune of probably £2 million a year. Uh, and when he died, that stopped. And we had all kinds of problems, myself, Mark Arthur, John Pelling, just getting the club to the end of the season. And the club was up for sale. Uh, and if nobody had come in to buy it, I'm not sure what would have happened. I honestly don't know. Um, it could have been administration. So when the al arrived on the scene, obviously, everybody, supporters included, I think, were, were incredibly optimistic. I was disappointed. I, I asked them uh, to make me the director of football uh, because I really felt I could make a, a, a big contribution to the club. They had appointed... Um, who they appointed as the manager? O'Driscoll. Yeah, O'Driscoll, Sean O'Driscoll, who yeah. was who was a relative newcomer. You know, certainly had never managed at that level before. Um, a, a top coach, but a, a newcomer, uh, no experience of managing a club like Nottingham Forest. And I thought I could have been a, a real help to him in his in his job. But they wouldn't have that. They didn't have. They wouldn't have that. And they just said, "If you want to stay on, you can stay on as an ambassador." Which was you know, okay. That's fine. Uh, you you get paid for doing very little, obviously, just being nice to people. Um, so that's what I did, and um, they, they were okay initially. Um, Steve, uh, no, O'Driscoll was Sean was doing okay. He was having problems um, communi communicating with the owners. Um, and then we got, uh, I think we got, was it Boxing Day when we beat Leeds? 4-2 mm. or something. And we were like 6th or 7th in the league. And they sacked him. Which really amazed everybody. Um, and they brought in Alex McLeish, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, for that short time, yeah. Which, on the face of it, looked a good appointment. Alex McLeish, good CV. But for whatever reason, it, it didn't work out. And and from then on, it it kind of all it all went downhill, really. Mm. They, they made lots of silly mistakes. For was used to appoint all these advisors, but never listened to their advice. Um, but to be fair, you know, they kept, they put 65, 70 million into the club in their time as, as owners, but they made lots of mistakes. Um, mm. And it, it became, I mean, <laughs> they sacked me, so that was a mistake. <laughs> um, they actually they actually put me on garden leave, which was, I mean, at a stand, if they'd come to me and said, listen, you know, this ambassador thing isn't working, we think you should pack it in and I said okay if you don't want me to work for you that's fine instead they never spoke to me they sent me a solicitor's letter saying you're on you're on garden leave you know which is like an astounding thing to do to anybody really as an ambassador I mean there was no need for that and um, 
and then they appointed Billy, you know. Well, in fact, they'd, app they'd appointed Billy Davis before that. Um, so, so that was it. Um, and then after that, they made you know they made one mistake after another, really. Mm. And it became well, it became a, a nightmare. I think the I think the family in, in uh, Kuwait kept saying to uh, saying to Fawade. We put all this money in the club, and we're not doing anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're getting terrible stick on on the internet. What's going on? And um, I think he was just looking to get out after that. If you've got time, I'll tell you another story about Fawaz. It kind of sums them up. Have we got time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got time. Don't worry. In the, in the October of his last year at the club, he asked me to go meet him in his uh, in his house in Mayfair. Not to talk about the club. Man, I mean, fine. I'd, I'd, I'd never, I'd never taken it personally. He was, he's a nice bloke, like he was quite personable, you know. And he'd invited me back into the into the club, and I, I was I was welcome at the club, and in no kind of role at all, just as a, a, a spectator. So I went down to uh, to Mayfair and met him in this fantastic house, and he said, "I want you to run the club for me." Um, <laughs> You can have any title you want. You don't have to work full time. I want you to run the club. He said, I can't find anybody that I can trust like, you know. And I thought, oh, all right. So I said, well, I need to think about that one. Anyway, whilst we're talking, his phone went. And it was Paul Taylor. <laughs> who was then working for the, for the Post. Yeah. So I had this conversation with, with Paul Taylor. And it's about an American takeover of the club that Paul knew about but was sitting on it but had heard that another journalist was going to print the story. So Paul obviously had to print it or he would have been made to look a mug, you know. Hmm. And so I said to the well, where would that leave me? Like, if, if they're coming in, you know. Oh, I said, I've spoken to them about you. You'll be all right. I thought, oh, okay. So anyway, I, I went back home to think about it. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose? So I rang him up on this, this mobile he gave me and I got an answer phone. So I left him a message. For wives, yeah, I'm really interested. Uh, let's talk again and see if we can fix something up. This was in the October. I've never spoken to him since. <laughs> he never, if, if you're, uh, you're, I don't know whether you know, he never came to the club once from October to the mm. end of the season when they sold the club. Never once did he come to the club. I so he never, he never, never even replied to I tried three times to leave a message for him. Never heard one word from him. Okay. You know, where's the logic behind that, you know? Mm. So mm. I just think he, in his last year, he just, he just wanted out, you know. I do think there were people at the club who were, without naming names, who were, taking his eyes out, really, not looking after his interests, if you like, um, or, you know, his family's interests. And uh, he couldn't see it, you know. Um, so, no, it was, it was, it, it, I was, I, I didn't feel sorry for them, but it was, it was a massive disappointment the, the, the way it went, you know. If it, if it got some people in there who, A, they could trust and B, they would listen to, you know, because none of them had any idea about English football. I mean, he'd, they'd 
so I had been running a club in Kuwait, but that was you know that was no prep, no preparation whatsoever for for running a club in in England. Hmm. Um, it, it it could have worked, you know, but it uh, but it didn't. It was, it was it was sad, sad for them and, and sad for the club. I know um, yourself and the other miracle men were kind of exiled at that time. There's a question here from Greg Oram about the current Forest hierarchy. Um, uh, is it a better relationship now with the club and the guys who won the European Cups and the league title? Uh, well, yeah, it's much better. Um, they, they, over the last two years, they, they made quite a fuss of the uh, uh, of the European Cup uh, winning group. Um, obviously, since March, since lockdown, they've not been able to do anything. But they, 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 they did bring the, the group uh, into the club. Uh, they they brought John McGovern and myself officially in as ambassadors. Although I've now been made redundant from that post, but in a in a proper way, not not with a letter, put me on garden leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an amicable conversation with Yanis. And I understood, I understood, you know, there's nothing for me to do as an ambassador now. There's no hospitality. There are no sponsors to talk to. There are no fans around the game. Uh, so I understood that. But they did bring bring uh, the team in. We had a we had a, a dinner at the end of uh, the season before last at the ground and a big a big kind of thing in the car park. I don't know if you remember that. Mm. Um, so they have made a, much more of an attempt than anybody, any regime previously to uh, to make the, the cup-winning squad feel more of a part of the club. Nobody else did. Um, I think we've had, before, before um, they bought the club, I think we had one dinner at the uh, East Midland Conference Centre, uh, that Brian was there, um, and other than that, there was nothing. We've had functions uh, at the Theatre Royal and places like that, but they were arranged uh, independently of the club. Um, so the current uh, owners and administration have tried to uh, have tried to make the players feel uh, feel a part of the club and. Uh, the local lads like John Robertson and Gary Bertles and, and, and Archie and people like that um, have all been welcome uh, in the boardroom. Um, even go back before that, you know, Ian Story Moore is always uh, he's always welcome in the boardroom. Uh, John O'Hare is a, a, a host in one of the lounges. Um, so they have made uh, made much of an effort. What do you make of the current team? Obviously, they're struggling badly. Do you see any parallels, hopefully, with um, your team that went up? Do you think they, they might be able to turn it around still? Well, I'm very hopeful that they can turn it around. Um, but, you know, it's going to take Chris uh, uh, quite a while to, to to sort it all out because not only not only has he come to, uh, to a new club, uh, which would be difficult enough in itself because you, you have to then try and find out you know who are the best players? How you how who does what? How do you want to go with them? But he's inherited a group who are still getting to know each other because we brought in thirteen new players, I believe, in the close season at the last count. Um, you know the team that have played the last two or three games are really only uh, 
probably three of them, who were here last season. So it's like a double whammy, you know. Chris is trying to get to know the players, and the players are still getting to know each other. Mm. Um, so it's going to take it's going to take a while, but I've got no doubt that Chris will sort it out, um, and I've got no doubt that we've now got we've got some quality players in there who will will eventually make us into a, a, a decent team. It's a struggle at the minute, um, but it, it's going to be a matter of time, and it, it's certainly not something that you can solve overnight. Um, just before we finish, kind of a couple more questions. What are you up to then these days? Do you still see, I know you see a few of the legends, don't you? You meet up once a week, well, pre-lockdown anyway. Well, yeah, we used to. Well, I mean, I still, I'm still, I still get invited to the home games. We can go to the home mm. games, um, not the away games, uh, but that's got nothing to do with the club. You know, the protocols that, that are in place are very, very strict and, and they, all the clubs are, are adhering strictly to them. So, um, myself and John McGovern, who's, who's still there, we can go to the home games, uh, but we don't go in the boardroom and, and we don't sit in the uh, in the box. Uh, we have to sit in the stand at, uh, at least three or four seats away from each other. We've got to be isolated, social distancing. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a particularly pleasant experience, you know. Football without supporters is, is not the same, you know. Hmm. Obviously, the club can't do anything about that. Um, the the weekly meetings that we used to have, yeah, they've uh, they've gone on on the back burner. Obviously, uh, we used to meet in Copper with John Robertson, Colin Barrett, uh, Gary, Johnny Owen, sometimes the chairman. Um, occasionally, the, the the managers come along. You know, um, not not Chris. Obviously, he's still getting his uh, getting his feet under the table. Um, yeah, so I still see them. Uh, John O'Hare and Story Moore, they sometimes come uh, to meet uh, John as well. So, yeah, we, we, there's a few of us still uh, still keep in touch. Um, just before we finish, and there's lots of people saying what a legend you are and how well you look, Frank. Um, well, that's very kind of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask, actually, there's a good question here to finish on from Neil Francis. Um, I don't know if you're able to disclose this. Who were the four or five managers that turned down the job after Mr. Clough left? Do you know? No, he never told me that. Fred never told me that. And I wasn't interested, really. Um, I've, I've got no idea who they were. Uh, I can only assume that the point that you made earlier in the, in the interview, they were, they were daunted by the prospect of, of trying to step in his shoes. Um which was never a problem for me. I was never going to be try. I was never even going to try to be another Brian Club. That would have been foolish. Hmm. Um, but I knew, I knew the way the club operated more or less because you know I'd been I kept in touch with with Ronnie and, and Alan Hill and people like that anyway. Um, and I felt that it, I had nothing to lose. I could I could give it a go. But I don't know who the other five were. And he never told me. Sorry about that. <laughs> Did. You- did you, uh, I'm curious to know, did you take any counsel from Brian when you were manager or did you want to keep some distance and it to be, you know, your team? No, um, no, I didn't. That wasn't deliberate. Um, one of the things that he did that, that was really helpful to me, um, he kept, a, if you remember, he kept a very low profile after he left. 
Brian. He wasn't very well, obviously. Hmm. And uh, you never came to games. You never saw him quoted in newspapers or television. Um, so he kept a low profile. So it wasn't like there was a like a brooding presence on my shoulder, you know. Um, and I, I no, hardly I didn't see him. I mean, I, what, just once um, he invited us up to his house. Alan, Alan Hill and myself invited us up to his house for tea with him and Barbara, and that was a, a very interesting experience. But we didn't talk about football. We actually ended up. He disappeared uh, whilst we were sitting there and wandered off into the house for about twenty minutes, and came back with a guitar. <laughs> That was desperately out of tune and said, sing me some Ink Spot songs. Well, I have to say, I do go back a fair bit with my repertoire, but the Ink Spots were, were a little bit too far. <laughs> so anyway, we had, I, I eventually tuned this guitar and we ended up sitting around, the, the four of us singing a couple of Ink Spot songs and a couple of other songs. It was really nice, but we never talked about football. You play guitar? Yeah, not very well, but I do play it, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Frank, we've kept you for such a long time, um, and I've got to get to the manager's press conference in a bit. So uh, we're really grateful to everyone who um, stuck with us for the whole duration of an hour and 20 minutes. There's been a lot of people watching. Oh, people. my. <laughs> so my. I'm glad. People out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you've gone. People love you. Um, oh, God, let's put some comments up so people say, um, yeah, people uh, from Greg Orr and their proper legend, uh, Owen Bailey, thanks for your time. Um, so uh, another vote. Of, yeah, there's a vote of confidence for you, Frank, from Chris Cooper. That's very kind. <laughs> First one I've had. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Frank, it's been um, great to have you for so long with us. Um, you might not think you're a legend, but everyone else does, and I certainly do as well. Um, we shall be back uh, perhaps on Thursday after the country game. We can head to the Wickham game. But thank you to everyone who watched along. Uh, Frank, look after yourself in this miserable lockdown. Hopefully you are able to meet up with all your legends again soon. Thank you very much, Matt. And we shall uh, see you soon. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Yeah.